Texas with episode 375 of the Survival Podcast. What are we going to look at today? Today we're going to look at three very different threats, and then we're going to examine disaster commonality as it pertains to these threats. So what are we going to look at? Well, last night I was watching a discovery show called Perfect Disaster, and they did an episode on coronal mass ejections and solar storms and what the perfect solar storm like that would look like. And I actually have done some more research and found that they were underestimating uh, the danger, or at least not fully understanding the danger back when that um, show was made. And some, some kind of recent discoveries have told us that some of the things stated in that show were just incorrect, uh, such as only a southern-facing storm is dangerous. We'll talk about what that means in, means in a minute. Uh, but there's there's a serious threat there. and. Uh, some some threats looking forward into 2011 and 2012 uh, with this solar cycle that runs its course every 11 years. So we'll talk about that, what it would look like if it was a big disaster, and what the, the aftermath would be. We're also going to talk about pandemic. Um, kind of a mile-high view of it, just like we are about the solar mass ejections, or the coronal mass ejections. Coronal mass ejections. Uh, we're going to look at pandemic in the same way. And then we're going to look at a major ice storm, uh, something that we haven't seen any time recently, a really, really big one. We're going to look at those three, and then we're going to say, if we experience any one of them, how many of the things that we have to be prepared for are identical, and how many are different? And what is the big difference? And there's only one big difference in dealing with each of those three threats. As, as crazy as it sounds, they're, they're going to be so close identical. You'll see why we take the approach we do to preparedness where we don't focus on the causative factor. We focus on dealing without systems of support. Before that, though, we do need to do our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, as always, looking at our sponsors of the day. we got two great ones today. First one, Ready Made Resources. Absolutely an outstanding company. Wonderful people. Um, really a good friend to the show. Longtime supporter of the show. So um, let's support them back. And they have really cool stuff, especially when you start looking at their solar catalog and their 12-volt products that run on you know a, a typical DC-powered uh, solar backup system and things like that. Really an interesting array of stuff, so check out Ready-Made Resources. I know that every time I've done business with them, they've taken care of me, and I've never had a single complaint from a listener about them. Same thing with our next sponsor, they Sawtooth Tactical. Uh, Sawtac's an awesome little company. Uh, you know, it's kind of a, a, a small company, small businessman creating a niche for himself with some of the coolest tactical stuff that's available out there. Really excelling in customer service, always making sure they try to throw some little extra goodie in with your order. If you tell them you, you found them on TSP, for instance, they'll send you a 50-foot hank of rope uh, along with your order. And I've, I've heard that they're giving out other goodies there, too. Um, so check out Sawtac. Again, just an upstanding group of people that will take really good care of you. All right, moving on. <clears throat> Excuse me, I got a little bit of uh, a throat thing going on again today. Um, I, I want to kind of encourage you today to subscribe to like 
all of our social media outlets. Uh, I'm on Twitter, and I'll tweet with you if you'll, if you'll find me on Twitter and, and follow me. Uh, YouTube, you can subscribe to my YouTube channel. Become our fan on Facebook. All of the links for that are at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Um, I'm going to be running another contest on Friday, so make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel because it's going to be for YouTube subscribers only when I run the contest on Friday. All right, um, moving on from there. I wanted to let you know while we're talking about YouTube, uh, I actually recorded two videos yesterday that are already up on YouTube for the next phase of the long-term storage bucket project. So check out that project. It's going very well. And um, I did record the video I mentioned I would do yesterday. It's just not up yet. I'll try to get it up today. But I, I did show you kind of an update of how things are going out, even in the February garden here in Texas, uh, with just the addition of a fish tank as a mini greenhouse. So that's up on the YouTube channel, and the other one will be soon. Make sure you check out YouTube. Consider joining the Member Support Brigade. And in regards to the Member Support Brigade, I have an announcement. We have another new um, discount vendor supporting us in the brigade. Uh, the company is called People Powered Machines, and they're offering a 5% discount, and it's some you know larger ticket items, so 5% is actually quite a bit. Um, they have all kinds of cool stuff, manual lawnmowers where you don't need gas or electricity, uh, solar-powered backpacks. What the heck would you get a solar-powered backpack for? Well, what it is, it's a portable power source so that you can charge uh, things like laptop computers and handheld devices in your laptop while you're traveling, and that's that's really awesome. Uh, they also have plug-and-play solar systems, which is how I first saw them. Uh, basically, they have systems, you know, between uh, 525 and uh, like 20. 20 kilowatts, like from little to huge, and they're expandable and snap together, and they're completely plug and play. The, the, the philosophy is solar power in 30 minutes. So basically, if you can put them on your roof, point them at the sun, and plug in a few wires, uh, you might have to have one little tiny piece done at the end by an electrician. You can have solar in almost in a day. In fact, again, they say 30 minutes. So uh, actually, I'm going to have the owner of that company on as a guest in about two weeks. He can tell us more about that. But peoplepoweredmachines.com, I'll put a link in today's show notes. Check them out, even if you're not an MSB member. But if you're an MSB member, folks, 5% off. These guys look really cool. Excited to have them on board. Remember, we announced yesterday Black Belt Magazine for MSB members now at 50% discount. So do consider joining and supporting the show at uh, 20 cents an episode. Uh, that's $50 a year or $5 a month, immediate return of investment. And from there, let's go ahead and move on with the main topic of today's show. Let's start out with uh, coronal mass ejections and some of the uh, foil hattery, I'll call it. It's going around with 2012 right now. Uh, of course, I, I guess everybody on the planet with a television set knows at this point that supposedly the Mayans predicted the end of the Earth in 2012, and so did Nostradamus, and I guess Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck did too. The reality is the Mayans predicted nothing in 2012. Okay? The Mayans have a calendar that happens to end in 2012 because it's based on an astrological cycle that completes itself in 2012. An astrological cycle that has completed itself over and 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 over again in the five billion years that we've had our solar system uh, and our galaxy. And that's just the way that it is. And nothing's going to change because of that. But we do have something coming up in 2012 that, of course, those people that want to sell you whatever it is the hell they're going to sell you, uh, gold coins is, though, I guess gold coins will save you if the earth actually goes away or the end times come or, or all this other crap that people make up. 
But I guess it's it's unlucky that we're going to deal with the fact that there might be something big happen in 2012, but I consider it a coincidence. And that is that we're, our scientists are looking at the sun and saying this is a time period where the sun is going to go into some pretty big storm cycles. Now this happens, as I said in the introduction, every 11 years. But some storms are different, and then conditions are different. All right, that's the other side of this. Conditions are different. Let's look at something like Hurricane Katrina. If Hurricane Katrina had had the same size, force, and momentum, and went aground in the Carolinas coming up out of the Atlantic, it would have been a terrible storm, but it would have had nowhere near the impact that it did in New Orleans. New Orleans is a city below sea level with the ocean on one side and a huge giant lake called Pontchartrain on the other side with a levee system that had needed to be improved for 50 years. Money was allocated and the local people who were supposed to fix them didn't. So that was a, a series of conditions coming together. Well, we have a series of conditions that could be coming together and some of them are, in fact, all of them are just natural. But we actually now understand them. The first condition that we have is that scientists have believed for a very long time that when a, a magnetic storm is approaching the Earth, if it is a northward-facing storm, a north polarity storm, that the Earth's magnetic field and the solar magnetic field will reinforce each other and it harmlessly goes around the Earth and it doesn't cause any problems. And that a southern-facing storm is the ones that penetrate and get in. Well, in 2007, a northern-facing storm got in and caused some problems. Nobody died, no, no huge things, but the fact was it got in. The scientists, now to you that might sound like, yeah, whatever, right? But to the scientists that have been studying this thing and thought they understood it, it's like telling them, hey, sometimes the sun can rise in the west. That's what a paradox this is. It's not supposed to happen, so now we know it can. So you think about all these things that have to come together for the storm to really affect us. The first thing you have is a coin flip. Is it a north-facing or south-facing storm? If it lands heads, everything else can be right. It doesn't matter because it's a north-facing storm and it's going to reinforce and we're good to go. Well, that doesn't work anymore. So that first coin flip is out the door. Now, you might think the storm in the plasma itself is actually the big problem. It's not. What it will do is it breaches the atmosphere. It weakens the magnetic field and it changes its shape. And it charges the atmosphere so that it's, it's behind the, the initial storm front, this coronal mass ejection, which is this ball of fire and magnetism and hatred, you know, the sun's hammer, hits the atmosphere. Now the atmosphere has been set up so that that second wave has the ability to cause more havoc than normal. Uh, this happened, I believe it was 1829 or 1859, um, Sorry, it wasn't 1820. It was definitely 1859 because there were uh, telegraph wires in place. We didn't have those in 1829. Well, this storm that happened in 1859 fried telegraph wires. And, and you got to think about that. There's a storm in outer space hits the earth and fries telegraph wires. Now, the thing about telegraph wires, folks, is they're not high voltage. To the show I watched last night, again, underestimating the threat, the way they saved everything, at least in Brooklyn, was they shut down all the high-power transformers and did a controlled dark out. And um, they said it was only the high-strength uh, high transformers that are at risk. Well, if you can fry a, a, a telegraph line, which if you know anything about telegraph technology, it's not high voltage. There's no big, um, uh, there's no great big giant transformers, right, sitting out there on a telegraph system. 
So again, we have vulnerabilities beyond the big transformers. Um, what they also said, though, is these huge transformers that would be very susceptible to this, uh, this phenomenon, we can only build globally about 100 of them a year. And there's tens of thousands of them around the world. Uh, and there are you know, hundreds of them just in America. And globally, we can only replace 100 a year. Again, discovery always seems to fall short of actually conveying how bad these disasters would really be. Well, we can produce a hundred of them a year when the power's up everywhere, folks. So we would be talking if we had a massive power outage because of this. Power off across the globe for years. Perhaps a decade in some places. Now, they always then refer, now they underestimate everything, and then they refer to it as going back to the Dark Ages. But we see, we would never go back to the Dark Ages right now. This is what people, this is why I call that, you know, uh, hysterical bullshit, honestly. What we didn't have in the Dark Ages wasn't just electricity. We didn't have the knowledge of electricity. We didn't know how it worked. We didn't have anybody trained in it. We didn't have anybody that knew design, the schematics, uh, assembly, how to put it together. you got to realize, we didn't have you know, distributed electricity for, we've had it for less than one-tenth of one percent of human history. And look what we've done with it. So we could rebuild a lot faster, I think, and we get creative a lot faster than a lot of these, uh, these I don't know, Hollywood think tanks come up with. But we're talking about a major global catastrophe. And what happens when this uh, CME, this coronal mass ejection, hits the planet? is it goes into the atmosphere that's been created, and it bends it and, and creates a tail on the backside. So the sunward-facing side, you, you look at our atmosphere almost, our magnetosphere really, not our atmosphere, almost looking like a comet shape around the Earth, with the head being pointed toward the sun and the tail being on the dark side of the planet. Well, when those two uh, waves come back together on the backside, it's like completing the circuit, and it dumps terawatts of electricity into the atmosphere. And that creates the threat. And what can happen? Planes can be knocked out of the air. Satellites definitely completely wiped out. And there's a severe threat to the electrical grid. The solution last night, again, was to shut down the grid. Here's the thing. Will our politicians have the stones to deal with people being upset because they shut the grid down for 12 to 48 hours, which is what it would take. It would take a certain amount of time to get it all shut down, and then you can't just turn it all back on. But here's the thing. If they would do that, they could mitigate a lot of this. But I still think we'd have major problems. It's not as rosy as Discovery paints it again. Because, again, how much of our critical infrastructure today requires satellites? How many of them can be damaged or even knocked out of the air? So these are the things that we have to think about. But the end result is, if our ass clowns in power don't shut down the grid with a controlled shutdown, which they probably won't. And even if they do, there's no guarantee that there still won't be massive damage to the electrical infrastructure. We can have power out around the world for six months to many years. That's the end result. That's the net result. One more thing before I move on to the next threat. Another thing that we've discovered is there's a couple holes in our magnetosphere. Now, they're saying this is new and, and what have you. They really don't know. They don't know if maybe there were holes in our magnetosphere in 1859, and that's why the storm was so bad. Just understand, I'll post a couple links about uh, coronal mass ejections, an interview with Dr. Michio Kaku explaining how big the threat really is, and, and an and a, and a article from NASA itself 
that says, hey, look, this is a real problem, and this is what could happen this time or maybe next time around. And explaining what, I, what I've explained to you today about believing that only a southern-facing storm was a threat, and now they know that's not true. A northern-facing storm is a threat as well. So half of the get-out-of-dodge card is now gone. All right. Um, moving on kind of to the next threat. Let's you know, not get too depressed because I want to start talking about solutions here pretty quick. Let's look at a pandemic. And let's look at the real threat of a pandemic and, and what a real pandemic would look like. Let's, let's look at a pandemic that has an infection rate of 50%. Because right, it's that kind of a contagious human-to-human transmission disease. If we have a, a, an infection rate of 50% in this country, that's 150 million sick people. So let's cut it in half. Let's take it down to 25%. Okay, let's be a little bit more optimistic. Okay, 75 million people. All right. Let's say that it has a death rate, bad, bad stuff, of 10%. 10% of people that get this illness die. That is not overreaching. There's been plenty of, of, of diseases in the past that have had a lethality rate higher than 10%. Okay, so now we have 75 million people sick, 7.5 million people dead. If you have that, that type of ratio, okay, 10% dying, you're going to have a need for hospitalization about double the death rate, and that's being optimistic. Right, so 7.5 million dying is they've also gotten help, help, you know, and there's been medical care. So that re- that's about 15 million people, half of which are going to die anyway, requiring services from a hospital. Perhaps severe services from a hospital, ICU beds. Okay, I'm going to put it to you as flat out as I can. There are not 15 million hospital beds, be they in little clinics, or giant hospitals. There are not a total of 15 million hospital beds in existence in the United States of America, period. I'm talking willing gurneys into, into the waiting rooms, setting up cots. There's not enough space in hospitals for 15 million people in this country to be hospitalized at the same time, let alone 15 million people to be hospitalized in addition to the people who are already in the hospital, where you can have heart transplants and liver transplants and dialysis and chemo and all the other things that hospitals, hospitals run near to capacity every day. There's very few hospitals right now that are like, hey, we got like 100 open beds. Doesn't really happen. We build to the need. And we don't have a lot of headroom for critical needs. That's just reality. And we really can't afford to do much more. What does that mean? That means in a pandemic, there will be a lot of people sick enough to die that can't get into a hospital, not because people hate them, not because the government wants to exterminate you or any of this other nonsense, because there's not enough space. We don't have the infrastructure. And the more people that don't get into an environment like that to be treated, the longer they wander around, the longer relatives and friends try to help them, the greater the inspection, the infection spreads. And that's why with that type of an infection rate, 25%, it would turn into 50 as a minimum. Because of all the people that couldn't get care, and because we're humans and we don't throw people out in the streets just because they're sick, though at some point that starts to happen too. During the bubonic plague in the Dark Ages, people that didn't get sick, that had whole families that were sick, 
grabbed what they could and they left and they fled and they left their families to die. And they waited six months. Because that was pretty much a duration of how long it would affect an area. They'd go and hide out somewhere. And then they'd come back and see if anybody made it. Because they knew if they stayed, they would die too. It sounds heartless. But there's a point at which you look at everybody that gets this damn thing dies. Your whole family's laying there puking blood. And you've been lucky enough not to be infected yet. Now the problem is the guy that flees, he's usually got infected by now and doesn't know it. He takes it with him and he gets sick and he spreads the disease and he dies anyway. Well, in today's age, we can move a lot faster. We can spread this thing a lot faster. So if we go up to a 50% infection rate over the duration of a pandemic, we're looking at 150 million people being sick. We're looking at 15 million people dying. And we're looking at 30 million people that require hospitalization to either go there to die or to possibly survive. That's a best-case scenario of something that bad. How many things out there are that bad? The answer is we don't know. And it could be a lot less, and it could be a lot more in any individual pandemic. Don't feel like the threat is gone because the swine flu was overblown and made out to be a bunch of nonsense that it wasn't by our government idiots. And this is why I don't believe in the conspiracy theories a lot of people do, because you guys think our government is competent. Our government is incompetent. To pull off some of this stuff, we'd have to have the most ultra-competent government in existence. We have a bunch of incompetent idiots up there. That's why they keep screwing everything up. Now, I don't poo-poo every conspiracy theory. I've heard a lot of people say, well, this one's true and that one's true. And I'm like, that's not even a conspiracy theory. Let's stick to, to reality here for now, okay? This is just the cold, hard facts about an illness. Now, with that type of an impact, you know what's going to happen? You have power outages. Services will collapse. Food distribution will collapse. It'll be impossible to travel. Even if you could, you won't want to. It'll be like, as they say on Discovery Channel, the Dark Ages. And all of these things would happen with this power shutdown, too. Food shortages. Inability to bring... Uh, I'm back to the coronal mass ejection now. Inability to, to move stuff around. To get things done. To process things. Hospitals. So think about how much electricity one hospital uses. So our CME, the hospital can't function because its electricity is shut down. In a pandemic, the hospital can't function because it's overburdened, overloaded. The electrical infrastructure starts to fail eventually, and you can't feed the people you have there as patients because you have food shortages. Kind of dark stuff, isn't it? Don't worry. We'll get to the good stuff. So let's look at one more. Let's look at something that happens all the time, and let's just consider one happening a little bit bigger, an ice storm. An ice storm is actually very similar to these other two events in its effects. When you have a severe ice storm, the first thing that gets attacked is your infrastructure. One of the very first things to fail is electrical power. During a time where it's very cold outside, people start to freeze. Firewood becomes a currency in an ice storm, especially a long-duration ice storm. Food and, and supplies can't get in. People can't get to the hospital. Power gets shut off at hospitals. Most hospitals and commercial businesses have backup power. They all generally keep about three days' worth of fuel. So the majority of ice storms that come along, people are able to get through them relatively well. Well, in 2009, just about this time, a little bit earlier in the year, I think, but just about this time last year, we had an ice storm. 
and it didn't really cause that much damage, unless you have certain people in Tennessee and Kentucky and northwestern Arkansas that took it on the chin really hard. Overall, its impact was minimal. But at its height, and I have a picture of this somewhere on the forum. I'll see if I can find that old post. I did a screenshot off of weather.com. And at the height of this ice storm, there was a, a band of pink, which is ice on a weather radar, that went from El Paso, Texas, past Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in one continuous line. That's how big that ice storm was. Now, the only thing that mitigated the impact of that ice storm was that it was a very narrow band. Had that band, that band was maybe, uh, you can look at the image when I find it today, band was maybe 50 miles wide, maybe 100, maybe 100 at some of its thicker points. It was just this narrow band of ice covering 70% of our country, and it moved straight across, and it dropped ice everywhere from about Dallas, uh, west of, of Chicago, Illinois, east through Maine, and all the way down into southern Georgia, got ice from this one storm. And here in Texas, for instance, North Texas, we got about a half inch of ice. Half inch. We didn't lose a lot of power. It was able to handle it. But further north, in northern Arkansas, Kentucky, uh, what is that, Tennessee, in those areas, they got ice in the neighborhood of two inches. Power lines can't handle that. Can't handle the weight, and the trees over the power lines can't handle the weight. And things simply started to collapse. And in some areas, we have one guy who calls himself Kentucky Farmer on our form. We had people that went for three weeks during that ice storm without power. Now, these were little pockets, and our emergency responders do what they do in these critical situations. We can only have so many people working at one time. We have limitations to our response capabilities. So, over here, we have a sector where there's 10,000 people without power. And over here, we have a sector with 100 people without power. Sorry, 100 people. We're working on the 10,000 first. And because it was these minor pockets, minor not for the people in them, but minor compared to the totality of the United States, a lot of municipalities from outside were able to send in help. Another thing that we get really dependent on. If Dallas is overwhelmed, Houston's going to help us out. San Antonio's going to help us out. If they're overwhelmed, we go down there. If Texas is overwhelmed, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Louisiana's overwhelmed, Texas. See, we always do that. We're Americans. That's what we do. But I want you to think about that same ice storm. No more intense. No more cold. I just want you to expand that band from a 50-mile average to a 200-mile average. We end up here then, not with a half inch of ice, not with a couple inches of ice, but North Texas would end up with maybe four inches of ice. The places that got four inches of ice could end up with six, eight, twelve. That's literally tons. That's an amount that begins to start collapsing buildings. Definitely high-tension uh, power lines, the big transmission lines, they're coming down. And once one comes down, it's like dominoes. A whole pole, you know, big giant pole lines. You think about that. They're all right to the breaking point. Once one goes, and those wires have those tensions between them, it is like a domino scenario. And there's very little that can be done. Now, if that type of ice storm wiped out, you know, the eastern half into the Midwest and, and southwestern United States... We had power outages all through there. 
that looked just like what happened in Kentucky. How long does it take to replace that? We're talking about the infrastructure itself, the transmission lines being down. There's only so many redundancies in place, and how many of them have failed? We could have had places without power for a month or two. And we could have had a lot of places that were even heavily responded to without power for three to four weeks. And that's just from that one ice storm. And that's not as bad as it can get. And I, I want you to really think about that kind of an impact. Because that storm I'm describing happened a year ago. It already It's not like, well, maybe it could happen. I don't know. It could happen. No, it happened. It was here. We saw it. I watched it. I, I enjoyed it, actually, because I knew it wouldn't be that bad. I saw pretty ice in, all, in my tree in my backyard. But another few hours that ice coming down, and I would have been watching branches fall out of that tree. And it would have been awful cold here, and I'm sure I would have been firing up a generator. So, these are three very different things, but do you start to see how the impact is the same? Let's start looking at the commonalities of these three disasters. Again, coronal mass ejection, massive pandemic, major ice storm. Um, our, is our ability to get food from our normal channels interrupted in each one of these? The ability to basically go to the grocery store, yes. Is it likely that in each one, as soon as the threat is understood, whatever food is there will be quickly wiped off by the shelves by people hoarding because they were not prepared in the first place? Yes. Is it likely that we'll deal with long-term power outages in all three? Yes. The only difference is duration. Ice storm with a minimal duration, major pandemic with a minimal uh, middle duration, and a coronal mass ejection that's not handled properly with up to years of duration. And I hate to say it, but a pandemic, depending on what kind of pandemic and how it actually plays itself out, could be as bad or worse as the CME. It could be, it could be less than the ice storm. It all depends. But once the systems start to fail, it's not like they fail in pieces. Once a few pieces fail, there's a collapse. Because our infrastructure is highly interdependent upon each other. Do we have a threat to our water supply in each one of these events? Yes. With the CME, because we lose the power to pump. With the ice storm, even if we keep power in segments where we can pump. Uh, I'm sorry, with an ice storm, yeah, with that, we end up with people that can't get to work and do their jobs. We end up with frozen pipes. Right? I think I, sorry, I think I've, I've interplayed too many of these at one time today. With, it, with a CME, we end up with just so much power failure, we can't pump the water. That, that's what happens. And the sewage plants stop running. With, with a pandemic, we end up with a personnel shortage because people can't go to work and do their jobs, and we have electrical failures on top of that. With an ice storm, we end up with electrical failures that may or may not directly be bad enough, depending on how big the storm is, to shut the water off, but we end up with frozen pipes and things like that. And we end up with, if it lasts long enough, the power outages affecting the ability of our utilities to provide us with services like water. In these situations, do we end up in a situation where our hospitals are overloaded and overwhelmed? Absolutely in all three scenarios for very similar reasons. Uh, in an ice storm, we probably have plenty of old people being rushed to the hospital with hypothermia that are less able to deal with the situation. We have a tremendous number of homeless people heading to hospitals claiming to be sick. Right? We have plenty of normal sick people all the time. Well, the flu, I think it's self-evident. 
coronal, coronal mass ejection shutting down our electrical grid. We have all the horrors that it creates, creating injuries and problems. And see, the thing is, there's a nasty habit of pandemics that when sanitation fails, transportation fails, and medical care starts to fail, that they have a habit of popping up. So in either of these scenarios, specifically the CME scenario, we have a tendency, a potential for the two threats to combine and end up with a pandemic amidst a power outage. So what you start to realize is we have these basic plans that we put in place. We have an ability to evacuate if necessary, an ability to hunker down if necessary. We have enough food to feed ourselves. Hopefully you have a minimum, if you've been doing this for any length of time, of 60 days worth of sustainability in your home. You can stay put and feed yourself for at least two months. You have a way to purify water and get water. You have a way to heat your home if the power is out. If you have these things, you can let the peak of the chaos subside before you have to deal with the people that are out there freaking out. Because here's the reality. In each one of these scenarios, the disaster comes and goes. It's acute. When people start to reach their threshold of sustainability, which for most people, I hate to say it, is about three to four days, about three to four days into these disasters, people start to lose hope, and they start to react in very, very dangerous ways. See, the reason they should shut the electrical grid down, if, they, if there's a 1 in 100 chance that a storm's coming at us, they go, it's 1 in 100 that this is going to happen. If it's 1 in a million, no. You write it out. We have 1 in a million every day. But 1 in 100, when people know the power's going to be out for two days, but they know it's coming back on, they keep their heads. When people start to realize it's not coming back, it's not coming back this week, it's not coming back this month, with some of the longer-term scenarios, it's not coming back maybe ever for me. All bets are off. And people become dangerous. And it takes time for that to kind of run its course. And I hate to put it this way, but some of these long-term situations, it takes time for some of the most dangerous people to act as dangerous as they're going to and put themselves into situations where eventually they die off. I know that sounds dark, but... You can't live without food. And some of these people that will initially decide this is a great time to steal a television set because they're morons, what are you going to plug it into, idiot, will eventually get themselves into situations where they're going to starve. So you need to have a means to defend yourself. But my point here is, in each of these scenarios, it's radically different as these seem to be. One is a threat from a microbe. The other is a, is a terrestrial weather event, an ice storm. The other is a extraterrestrial weather event, a solar storm. The response that you need to have and the ability that you need to have and the reserves that you need to have are all the same. There's a very good chance that if you have a solar-powered system, you'll have electricity even after a major solar event, especially if you're smart and shut your power down, because we would know that's coming unless you have a major hail event that damages your solar panels once the ice melts off you didn't have any physical damage to your solar panels or your windmill or whatever and hopefully you can take some precautions if you know this is coming again you'd have power definitely pandemics don't affect solar systems or any kind of backup power systems you would create so there's a potential to be with energy after this type of a crisis arises Food, if you have food stored, 
none of these events actually affect your food. The only thing you have to worry about is being ground zero of some type of disaster that actually destroys the structure, the place that you have your food stored. That's why I recommend you don't store all your food in one place and you have fallback locations. But the reality is, as horrific as all these things are, unless you happen to be the person that gets sick, or you happen to be standing underneath the transformer when it blows up, or if you happen to be, you know, driving down the road when the ice storm starts and go off the road and into a ditch and die, unless you happen to be in that type of a position, they're all survivable. They're not just survivable, we can come out the other side of them thriving. We can rebuild, we can put society back together. And we can put society back together far faster than most people uh, estimate. Again, I want you to understand the big thing that we have today, that they didn't have before all this stuff was invented and created, is the knowledge of how to create it, more so the knowledge that it can be created. 200 years ago, nobody thought we could create a satellite, put it up in space, have it orbit around the Earth, and bounce signals around so that millions and millions of people could then see a common image in almost real time of something going on on the other side of the planet. 200 years ago, the concept that we could build big metal towers all over the place and everybody would have a little handheld device that they could speak into and call any other person on the planet that had one of these devices by entering a numeric code that would be unique to that individual I mean, people would have thought, Werner, which, right? The knowledge that it could even be done wasn't there. 200 years ago, we didn't have a phone, a landline phone. 200 years ago, we didn't have a light bulb. 200 years ago, most of the things that you use every day, not only did we not have, not only did we not know how to make them, we didn't even conceive of them. That's why I'm optimistic about society as a whole. We're going to screw a lot of things up. There's going to be a lot of problems as we go down through the road of life. And I hate to say this, but I think the coming generations will see bigger problems than this one. But it doesn't have to be the end. It could just be part of being human and being on our planet. We've been threatened as a species since we were walking around barefoot carrying a, a sharp stick constantly going back through the human gene pool we can find at a point in time what they call a bottleneck of human genetics when the human race was pushed to the brink of extinction the person on the other side of the world that looks nothing like you that you're convinced is so much different from you it's so genetically close to you, it's unbelievable. And we can trace back to that bottleneck. When science estimates that there were less than 10,000 human beings on our planet, today we have like 6.7 billion. Man is a self-destructive creature. There's no doubt about that. But we're also an innovative creature. And we have an ability to think, act, and do. And the big thing that I want you to take away from today's show is that we have an ability to foresee the probable future. We will, in my estimation, never have the ability to foresee the actual future. To be able to say, these events will happen exactly this way. There's always going to be probabilities at play. 
That's why mathematics is so valuable to us, so we can determine what is the most likely event, what is most likely to occur. But right now, human beings are the only thing on this planet that can go, huh, solar cycles occur every 11 years. The next big one's going to start in 2011, but really come to fruition in 2012. In 2012, hmm, we could have a major threat to our electrical and space infrastructures. Maybe we should take some steps to compensate for that. Now, unfortunately, we have to rely on our government and the world's governments to do things at a high level. You can't just walk down to your local, uh, you know, electrical plant and say, uh, it's uh, November 11th, 2012, um, we're expecting a big storm today, let's shut this thing down. And you probably shouldn't have that ability. Because we, we people will be shutting stuff down all the time. But you control your life. If that's a threat that concerns you, at two years, to have a food supply, to have backup energy sources, to be prepared for it. Pandemic could hit us any time, but it's not hitting us right now, so there's something you can do about it. You can study history. You can understand that at one point in time, 25% of the world's population was wiped out by a single disease. At a time when diseases traveled much slower than they can today. You can pay attention to recent events. And you can realize that even though our, our, our political ass clowns were totally wrong about the swine flu, because everybody wanted to get in, the mic in front of the microphone to tell you to sneeze in front of your sleeve and feel like, I did something if it goes bad and cover their ass. You can realize that that doesn't matter. You can look at the death rates from things like H5N1, avian flu. You can look at the death rates and the hospitalization rates from recent phenomenons like SARS. And you can understand that there's more varieties of diseases, bacteria, viruses than there are individual humans on the planet out there floating around, many of which have not yet been introduced into the human body, and we don't know what the responses will be, how they will adapt, and how they will change. You can realize that that's a potential threat, and you can do something about it. You can turn on the Weather Channel, and you can look at it, and you can go, that's a big band of pink-ass stuff coming towards me. Maybe I need to be prepared. If you're smart... You can say, winter's coming, and in October, make sure you have a few cords of wood for your fireplace delivered, or you go out and cut it yourself. I don't care how you get it, but get it into your home. Have some redundancy for heat, some redundancy for electricity. Have a basic disaster kit. But what you can't do is you can't rely on the media, you can't rely on the news, you can't rely on the government, and you can't even rely on your neighbor to take care of you. Let me tell you what I saw this morning on the news, where again, once again, I want to stick my hand into the screen, pull somebody out, and just smack them. I was watching the Today Show, you know, Matt Lauer and that, that bimbo uh, that, uh, inter that was all upset about the uh, poppy seed cake that they gave her when they did a show on preppers about six months ago or seven months ago, something like that. That bimbo was interviewing some lady from this old house magazine as an expert on how to put together a winter disaster kit. This is, I, guys, this is what she had. A box of Ritz crackers, a can of chicken in a seat tuna, two cans of Goya beans, a flashlight, a blanket, three candles. That was her emergency kit she had laying out on the table and explaining to people things like, if you have a candle, make sure it has a white base so it doesn't fall over and set the house on fire. 
And she said, don't use your stove to heat your house. That was the most valuable piece of information she gave, because I guess there's people out there that try to use a gas stove to heat the house. She really didn't talk at all about backup power or electricity. She ended up kind of being led into, I guess she could have like a propane generator. Propane generator. Whatever. She didn't say anything about firewood, kerosene heaters, any source of additional heat. I guess the blanket will keep you warm. Good luck. And it was a little pathetic blanket. What's my point? Do you and I are smarter than this bimbo that they brought on this show? No. My point is that they brought an idiot on the show to tell people how to prepare for major snowstorms while they're going on in our northeast right now. And this was the concluding statement. And this is why I will insult this lady and call her a bimbo. Well, we always have advanced warning things for these now, so there's no reason you just can't be safe and there's not much to worry about. We always have advanced warning for these things now. There's nothing to worry about. Really? This is your expert? So we always have advanced warning of the threats that come in. Because, see, this is not just about today's blizzard. It's about tomorrow's ice storm. Tomorrow's potential for a disease to ravage our nation. Extraterrestrial threats. And no, I'm not woo, out there. Comets, meteors, solar activity. Those are three huge threats. Real threats. NASA says they're real threats. I believe them. There's nothing in it for them to say that they're real threats. It just causes people to worry. The government doesn't want us to worry. They have to be honest about those. There's too much information out there right now. Too easy for people to discern. You can't rely on the infrastructure. You can't rely on the people behind the infrastructure. And you damn sure can't rely on your government. Again, you folks that think your government is so competent that they're like pulling all these strings. They're pulling a lot of strings. But they don't know what's going to happen every time they pull a string, folks. These guys are not competent, and at some levels, it's not about competence. It's about being completely and totally overwhelmed by certain things that no matter how competent they were, they still would fail. I mean, think about it. You could be the most competent doctor in the world, almost a Superman doctor, the doctor that can diagnose things immediately, innovate, figure out ways to treat people when you have situations that are, are harsh and limited. You could have all of that. And if I bring you ten patients that are all affected with the same thing, you might be able to walk right through that. You might be able to fabricate supplies. You might even be able to go out and start pulling plants out of the ground if you have to, to take care of those ten people. But you're one man. And if I give you a thousand patients, you can't do it. No matter what your intentions are, no matter how hard you work, even if you work until you fall over from exhaustion, you can't make a dent in a thousand people. Well, if we take 15 million sick people and send them to our doctors, that's what happens to every doctor. If we take and we put the power out between Dallas and Philadelphia, be it from an ice storm or solar activity, that's what we do to everybody in the electrical industry that responds and tries to help us. We overwhelm them. You almost don't know where to start in a situation like that. But you have to slowly pick up the pieces and put it back together. And most of us are going to be sitting around waiting for those pieces to come back together. I, for one, am not comfortable sitting around waiting without the ability to continue to live my life. 
So I've taken steps to make sure that if any of these things occur, that I'm prepared. And here's the big thing with disaster commonality. If anything happens in my life that creates catastrophe in it, even if it's just for me, I am better suited to get through that catastrophe simply because I'm prepared for a major catastrophe that might affect you as well. That's what it's really all about. All the things that we do. So let's look at that disaster kit for wintertime. But what should be in it? Well, the first thing I'm going to tell you is have a way to keep your home warm. That doesn't require electrical current to your home. And if you plan on using a generator for that, even if you have a very large supply of fuel on hand, a couple 50-gallon drums, you're talking two weeks maximum. Now that will get you through most things. If you have a natural gas power generator hooked up to your natural gas lines, in most ice storms and winter events, that will continue to work for you. But if you have natural gas, why not just use natural gas heat? See, you could, you could do that too. But hey, look, you've got power in addition. You've got lights that way. But first and foremost, if you live in an area where it gets cold, make sure you can keep your home warm. That is the most important step. Two, make sure you have enough food to feed yourself for a couple months. Why do I see you probably won't need a couple months in an ice storm? But if you have a couple months, a couple weeks is not a problem, right? See, this is the way these things piece together. The stuff that the lady had, the candles and all, not a bad idea. I'll tell you what, one of the, one of the types of candles that works really well uh, is a little light source that can be spread out. Are those little tea lights? I bought a bag of 100 of them for 5 bucks at Hobby Lobby. Now they have you know limited burn time and all, but they're small. They're relatively safe because they don't tip over because of a low profile. Put them in a little glass jar or something like that so that they they're contained, and you can get a lot of them for cheap. So there's nothing wrong with some of the, you know canned foods and, and Ritz crackers are not bad. I ate Ritz crackers with some chili last night. They were good, but you can't live off of them. You can't live off of Ritz crackers and Goya beans. This lady really dropped the ball here. She's supposed to be helping people. And the thing is, when do they bring a person like this in? They bring this person in after the event's already happened and while the second one's underway. It might have been a good idea to bring somebody into shows like this, you know, in November. And say, hey, winter's coming. It's going to snow. I've seen it before. It happens. And what happened? You would say, well, these people up there in, in northern Virginia and Pennsylvania, you know, they deal with snow all the time. Yeah, but they still wait till the last minute. I've got a picture on the forum right now that a guy pointed out of a grocery store in Virginia. Shelves empty. I'll see if I can find that post today, too, and post the link for you. Just make sure that you, you instead of worrying about, well, it's a winter storm kit. That's nonsense. Winter storm kit. What you have to do is think, what are the things that I am most dependent upon? And seasonally, heat is, is something you're highly dependent on. In the summer, in certain areas, especially with the way we build houses today, cooling is important. It's not so easy to live without air conditioning. It's not just inconvenient and uncomfortable. If you have older people, sick people, young children, you could be in a situation where losing power and the ability to air condition is actually life-threatening. A little generator and a small window unit to let you control the temperature in at least one room in the house is a huge asset in that situation. 
Again, you have a limited duration from the generator, but at least you can get through most emergencies. Remember, the stuff we're talking about today are the least likely events. Catastrophic, catastrophic ice storm, like nothing we've ever seen before. Solar storm, like something we haven't seen for over 150 years. A disease pandemic that we haven't seen since the Middle Ages. Doesn't mean they can't happen. But it doesn't mean we sit around worrying about them. What we prepare for is dealing with the systems of support they would take away from us. And then what we do is we understand that those systems of support are actually vulnerable at all times. You don't think they are? Let me ask you a question. The past five years, how many times, how many times have the lights gone out in your home? Basic, everyday, normal blackout. How comfortable were you when that happened? How would you have felt if somebody had called you up and said, uh, Mr. Smith, uh, we've got bad news. Uh, your power's not going to be back on today. And you go, oh, crap. When's it going to be back on? And the guy on the other end of the phone said, um, we don't know, and hung the phone up. How would you have felt in that situation? What if it would have been in the winter time? How would it have affected you? It is time to start thinking about some of these things. It really is, folks. And there's other threats out there. If we look at some of the big ones, we have peak oil as a threat, folks. Don't think peak oil is not a threat. And it threatens us in so many ways. It's not that tomorrow you're going to go to the gas station and the gas is gone forever. But what will 6 or $7 a gallon gasoline do to this country? Think about what $4 a gallon gas did to this country. What will 8 $9 a gallon gas do to this country? 10 it's not outside the realm of possibility. Another one of these wonderful Discovery Planet things, you know, Discovery Channel, whatever it is. Uh, I watched years ago, talked about oil drying up, and the year was like 2020. And you know what they said gas would be? Five bucks, and it was crippling the nation. <laughs> We're so close to, I mean, I think in some parts of the country last, uh, last year, or maybe a year and a half ago now, we had $5 gas. I know in parts of California we did. And this was, you know, they're drilling for the last oil in Alaska in this one. It was, I think it was called When the Oil Runs Out or something like that. Folks, we're already there. People do not get the scope of the size of the populations of India and China. They both have more than a billion people. So, to get this in your head, that is, um, let's just do, India is like 1.1 billion. Right? We have 300 million in the United States. So let's call it four times what we have. The next time you're in a really crowded place, and you're thinking, oh my God, the next time you're sitting in traffic, and you're not moving at all, you know, you're, you're riding the brakes, and moving a few feet, and then stopping again, and just wondering what the holdup is. Look around you, and multiply all the people and all the vehicles times four. And then think, all those people need gas just like you. And right now, those nations use less oil and gas than we do. They're going to start using more, a lot more. And then the next time you do that little thought experiment, and you're sitting out there and you're thinking, there's four times as many people as I'm looking at. You need to feed them all. You need to make sure they all have water. And you need to make sure that they all have a place to live. And you need to make sure that they all have energy. Well, those nations have looked at ours and said, 
you guys figured it out. You guys, you know what? This whole democracy experiment and free market capitalism and unabated growth and infrastructure development, that works. That's a pretty good life you guys have over there. We want it too. And they're also standing up, and this is something we have to contend with. Maybe rationalize. Maybe accept. I don't know what word I want to use for this. They're saying, we have as much right to it as you do. Now, they're not saying at your expense directly. They're just saying, hey, look, you can live that way. Why can't we live that way too? Why can't we make our nation just like yours? Isn't that what you guys have always said you wanted? What does that do to a resource drain? Folks, any slumber that's still in your heart that says this stuff's not that critical, you got to get rid of it. Because they're going to keep wheeling out idiots on, on daytime talk shows. They're going to keep wheeling out idiots on the morning news. They're going to keep telling you that it matters who won the Super Bowl. I'm not happy about it, by the way. I was rooting for Indiana, I guess, or Indianapolis. I guess it's because I'm a heartless, evil uh, uh, person that didn't want New Orleans to save their city by winning a Super Bowl. And the other nonsense they're putting out about stuff like that. I, I really think that a lot of us, even in the preparedness community, don't get how grave the situation really is for us as a planet as a whole. That's why I'm so big on permaculture. I think it's the solution. I don't know how many people will do it, but every person that does is one more person that can deal with catastrophe. And I got an email yesterday that said, hey, all this permaculture stuff's great. What do we get hit by a comet? We go into a nuclear winter from it. Okay, fine. All plants die. we got a real problem there. I'm not living my life based on that. I'm looking at the most credible, most probable threats that this planet faces going forward. And they are anything, and there's plenty of stuff out there that threatens our electrical and technological infrastructure. And that includes the government that's making bantering now. And as, as nuts as Alex Jones is sometimes, he's right about this. They're wanting to take over control and censor the Internet. They control communications because they don't like what people are saying. So we have natural and man-made threats to our infrastructure of electricity and technology. We have an energy crisis that we're sitting in the middle of, and we're too stupid as a species to actually recognize and see. And we want to talk about global warming like that's the problem. Even if man-made CO2 emissions were raising the global temperature, that's not the problem. I'll take a warm planet, thank you. It's a cold one that scares the hell out of me. The problem is, we're polluting our planet. Not with CO2, but with real legitimate toxins. We've created a throwaway society where we take finite resources, utilize 10% of their capabilities, and throw them into trash heaps. We've taken the most fertile farmland in the world, we've turned it into deserts in the United States. And in Australia, we've turned them into salt flats. Which is just another type of desert. We've taken the most, or the largest source of power known to mankind and we've built vehicles that don't utilize its full potential and we've burned it and we burn it every day so that Manhattan can be seen from outer space we burn 
massive amounts of energy, folks. Massive amounts of energy. And why do we do it? Why do we burn it? Well, we burn it so we can light up the night sky. You know, we burn it for so many reasons that don't actually help anybody. We've gone through somewhere in the neighborhood of half the oil that's available. Half. Let's call it a third to be optimistic. And let's say there's another piece out there equivalent to what we think's out there. And um, we haven't gone through a third. We've gone through 25% of it. So that means from the dawn of the industrial age to now, roughly 100 years, we've burnt 25% of the oil that we have available to us. That's the best case scenario that if everything stayed and we only used as much as we did this in this hundred years, that we'd have another 300 years to go. That's not my problem, right? Do we have any thought at all to future generations of what we're leaving behind? And as we know, we burned a hell of a lot more oil between 1990 and 2010 than we did from, let's say, 1930 to 1950. And guess what, folks? Again, there's another 2 billion people that want some tool. We're going to accelerate the burn rate in so many ways. We just have to think about that. At this point, we have kind of reached a peak in so many things. We've reached a peak of agricultural production. You'll see agricultural yields actually begin to decline in the coming years because of what's been done to the land that we grow on and what's been done to the water supply that we use to irrigate it. That's going to happen. Agricultural yields are going to fall and global population is going to rise and some people don't eat now. Does it take a genius to understand that that means we've, we've reached peak agricultural production? That supply and demand are going to go into an inverse curve now? That we've reached peak water? That doesn't mean water won't come out of your faucet. It means that water's not available to the farmer 3,000 miles away from you that grew your breakfast yesterday. We've reached peak oil. I, I think we're in peak oil. And people go, well, Jack, I don't think you believe in peak oil. I don't know where you people get that. My point is, how long can we stay at peak? Is it 20 years? I don't know. It could be 10. It could be 20. It could be 30. But we're done. There's only so much more we can pull out of the ground and extract based on the, the increase in demand that is coming. But there's hope. There's hope in new solar technologies. And they're getting better, and they're getting better, and they're getting better. And you know what gives me hope in the solar technology field? Not our ass clown government. You do. You give me hope. You people who listen to this show. You want it. You're begging for it. And there's small business people out there going, we can do it better. We can do it faster. We can do it more efficient. We can make it simple. We can make it like freaking Legos. We can make it where you can, they're so inexpensive, you can cover your whole freaking roof. You don't care which side faces what. Everything except the side that never gets any sun, coated with film. And we'll plug it into a box, and it'll put power in your house. That's what gives me hope. People that say, I can feed two families with an acre. That's what gives me hope. People that say, there's more to this life than sitting around zoning out or freaking out. 
And that's the two extremes that most people live their life in. They walked around like zombies. Zombie apocalypse. It's a joke people talk about, right? You're seeing the zombie apocalypse right now. Go outside of your door. Go outside of your office. Look at the people. They're zombies now. They're not eating from each other's flesh. They're eating away at their own life. Because they don't get that there's something worth living for. Many, many years ago, I became in touch with this. And I even became a zombie for myself for a while. But zombies are something that can be cured. Especially if you don't go all the way. Because that PCU lives in you. This is what I noticed. I used to contract for Lockheed Martin in Grand Prairie, Texas. Huge complex. So many people work there that they have two prefixes for their in-house phone numbers. 603 and 604. Okay? So they have more than 10,000 phone numbers in this complex. Huge long buildings. And there's this one long corridor that connects two buildings with this huge window. And outside of that window is a massive parking lot where hundreds and hundreds of people park. And I always used to get there very, very early so I could leave very, very early. Because I had a, a, a contract position where I had certain things that needed to be done and I worked eight hours a day. And I could come in at six o'clock, work eight hours and leave if I wanted to. No one cared. As long as my workload was kept up. So I'd come in early. I was there before most people were. I'd run to the office, I'd get a big cup of coffee, and then I would go stand in that long corridor window. And I'd look out there, and it would still be dark, and I'd watch the sunrise. And I saw some of the most beautiful sunrises standing in this huge industrial complex, just watching them come up every morning. That was my ritual. And once the sun rose, I'd feel good about the day, and I'd go to work. I'd done that for about three or four months, and I realized that once in a while people would ask me what I was doing, and I would tell them, and they'd kind of shrug their shoulders. I didn't get it. Every once in a while, somebody would stop and go, oh, yeah, that's really pretty. And the next day, that person would walk right by. There weren't that many people because most people weren't at work yet. And then, one day, I took my eyes off the sunrise, turned them down from the second floor I was standing into the parking lot. And I started watching the people arrive at work. There was a little turnstile gate. You had to have a badge to get in. I watched them. And I watched, and I said, I want to see one of these people look to the rising sun between their car and this gate. And I watched that morning dozens of people walk to the gate with their head pointing to the ground. And not one of them looked. So for the next couple of weeks, while I was watching the sunset, I was also watching people and in several weeks' time, one person stopped and looked at the sky. One. One of the most beautiful scenes you can behold is the rising or the setting sun. These people walked by it every single day. It was probably the, the potential bright spot of their day. They could not pause for a second to look. That's a zombie apocalypse. That's what corporatism and government control of our lives has brought. It's here. And it's brought all these other catastrophes. And here's the thing, folks. If you don't wake up and if you don't take control of your own life, 
You're part of that zombie apocalypse. And a lot of these things that we talk about as being catastrophes, people will adapt. Society will adapt. People will do without. People will suffer. People will be miserable. And they'll still convince us we're happy because we have that shiny credit card and we have the latest iPod and the biggest plasma TV that's available. And we're going to be in debt slavery for the rest of our lives. And we don't look at sunrises and we don't look at sunsets. But Billy plays 15 sports. And we car them around in that SUV, and if that SUV has to become a Yugoslavian car that's a piece of crap that runs on two gerbils and some acorns, fine. I just don't want you to take away my pretty stuff. But we don't stop and look at everything that's just here. We don't appreciate everything that's just here. We don't just do it. And you might be thinking, boy, this guy's getting preachy, ain't he? And then we, just, we should wrap up. Well, I'm wrapping up now, folks. You might want to know what this has to do about being a survivalist and surviving. Surviving is more than breathing tomorrow. That's basic fundamental 101. Wake up tomorrow alive. But you can wake up tomorrow alive every day in a prison cell that's not the way you want to live. If you're a survivalist, your goal is not just to make it through to the other side but to control your destiny. No one gets into preparedness as a lifestyle just in case something goes wrong. They get into preparedness as a lifestyle so that they will have control of their life if something goes wrong. Well, what misses it for them is many of them are walking around not in control of their life today. And you'll never be able to handle what could come your way and be in control. If you can't be in control when times are good, it's not going to get any easier. So it is important to stop, pause, think, understand. Understand the threats and understand the beauty at the same time. That's how you live a better life. That's how you make sure that you're not a casualty and not even aware of the fact that you're a casualty. Because if you're one of those people that walks by every morning sunrise without even glancing at it, you're already a casualty. And that's the person that's more concerned with Tiger Woods' personal life than they are with the potential for a storm that could disrupt their own. We don't have any more time for that, people. We are at a point where we either can control the world for ourselves and make things better for ourselves and hope that other people see that betterment and choose to join us or we can ride along with our fellow zombies into an apocalypse that's already here. It's our choice. It's not gloom and doom. It's about quality of life for you and quality of life for those that you love. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler It really doesn't matter Get spent